This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Plurcoast. Today is July 14th, 2022, and this is episode 298. I'm Dr. Lunderbaum. And I'm Stuart Prest. Stuart, uh, thanks for stepping in tonight. Ian is off as the pandemic finally caught up with him. Yeah, it is sad news for Ian, and we wish him a speedy recovery, but I am, as always, happy to be the emergency inflatable podcast code host. The bright glass in case of emergencies host. That's right. On today's show... Lots of people are not running in leadership races, but a lot of premiers are asking for money. But before we get into that, first we got to give a big thanks to all the patrons who helped make the show possible. Let's jump into our first segment, the leadership races. After last week's batch of announcements about people not running, well, even more of those have been coming in as this week... Nathan Cullen, Melanie Mark, and just today, Bowen Ma all said they aren't going to be running, but that David Eby fellow seems like a decent prospect for a leader. Yeah, although we have yet to hear anything official from him as well. So far, it's been a race from the leadership. Yeah, it's almost weird that he's gotten all these endorsements before he's actually announced, but that just seems to be the way it goes. The NDP is in theory, going to be releasing the rules in the next couple days. So we should have a little bit more of a sense by then. But given the way things are going, it may just be an acclamation. I think we are starting to look at it as a coronation. I think David Eby is going to wait until the last minute to to declare or near the last minute anyways. I don't think he wants to stop being attorney general before before he needs to. And that is the one of the requirements this time around for someone running for the leadership. And conceivably, there's a cabinet minister or two out there who is contemplating making a last minute dash into the ring. We know that finance minister Selena Robinson is still thinking about it, having said she was asked to do so she is duly considering the, the possibility i think it it is interesting we can think about how this could play out for the ndp if there is no opponent and what could happen if we do see somebody step in at the 11th hour but uh, it there is not a lot of enthusiasm in the sense of people vying for the job so much as it seems like there's a satisfaction with where the party is going and and the heir apparent is a satisfactory option for everyone so far yeah, that does seem to be the case, though. I hope someone else steps forward, both so we have content to talk about over the next uh, several weeks and months, but also because we're the third largest province in the country. There's five million British Columbians. It would be nice if there was at least some democratic contestation around who gets to be the next premier. And it's all above board if it's just an acclamation within the party. It's uh, nevertheless feels offside of the spirit of democracy a little bit. 
Yeah, sometimes the races are won by acclamation. Nor more often it is your lesser known offices that not a lot of people uh, know exist or have a great deal of interest in. You would think. I am. I am a little surprised we don't see somebody at least stepping forward to to position themselves for either enhanced notoriety, an enhanced profile, or positioning themselves for a uh, a place in cabinet or trying to build a little rep- recognition and a bit of a machine for the the next run. Even if this particular race is a four on conclusion there's always next time around the NDP seem pretty solid they don't expect they'll lose an election at some point but they seem like they are going to be a competitive force going forward so being leadership if not this time then next time it would still be a desirable prize and starting a leadership campaign this time around is one way to position yourself for the next race whether it comes in 2032 or so 2042 who knows but it's never too early to think about the next one yeah and will the NDP give a good impression of being a fairly unified party that's enjoying the benefits of government. They're not without their own internal divisions like all parties are. And there's the one we've talked about on the podcast several times of kind of the urban professional class and the more kind of blue collar labor roots of the party. And David Eby's fairly clearly in the former category. And you think there, there might be someone from, I guess, the John Horton side more than anything, kind of poking their head up and wanting to at least represent that side, or for that matter, someone from the more environmentally hardcore side of things who aren't that happy with Site C, LNG, or any of the other compromises the NDP have made on the environment for the sake of the economy. Yeah, I think there there are issues within the NDP. The coalition seems pretty solid at the moment, but there are tensions, just as you mentioned, within the party. And you can game out what, what can happen by not having a contested leadership. Now, you're less likely to have those divisions exposed. You don't have the either a highly personal leadership campaign over without much substance is one possibility. So you avoid that. You also avoid having an airing of laundry of the people who are really concerned about the decisions the party has taken. Those who are critical, say, of Site C or critical of, of LNG development are, are not going to have a very public platform to attack the party's positions on those issues. But at the same time, then you don't necessarily have the... <laughs> The festivist style airing of grievances to to allow people to come back together and feel like they've been heard. And then you have this lingering open question. Can David Eby continue to hold the, keep the band together to, to hold that coalition together and win over not only the, the more urban, more Yimby style, more the, intellectual, for lack of better words, wing of the party, alongside that more work-oriented, more pragmatic, and perhaps more centrist wing of the party. It remains to be seen. Is he going to be a really effective messenger and champion for those voters as well? Yeah, and I think it's unlikely that the next election goes quite as well for the NDP as the last one. Just thermostatic rebounding is probably going to bring a lot of the narrow victories in like the Fraser Valley and stuff. And flip those seats back. But there, yeah, there very much is, I think, an open question on whether David Eby can appeal to people outside of the lower mainland. And that's uh, going to be a challenge for him, I think. But the NDP is probably in a good enough position that's not going to be felt for a while after the, uh, the coronation is complete. 
Yeah, I think we do have this fairly rugged uh, and coherent voting bloc behind the NDP at the moment. The one that propelled them to victory in 2020, it's still relatively intact. Younger voters, urban voters, but also some of those recent uh, voters who have recently relocated to places like the Fraser Valley and so on, who have spread from the more urban cores in Vancouver and Surrey and so on. The province is becoming more urban year over year, generation over generation. And so that that will tend to break in NDP's favor. And so we can expect that process to to continue. And it's just a question of whether and how Mr. Yeeby can speak with those voters and generate that same level of trust that Mr. Horgan seems to have managed, that that sort of whatever John does is okay, even if what he's doing is dropping an F-bomb in the legislature. That's a, it's a high level of trust with voters. And it will take some time for Mr. Yeeby to match that. Yeah, and that's going to be the other challenge for the NDP going forward is the the John Horgan premier dad affect is going to be one that's hard to replace, but also was probably the NDP's greatest asset. And without that available, it's it's going to be harder to keep the rougher edges of the party sanded off. Yeah, it may take some time. And of course, politicians can grow into new roles. We have seen that happen. Doug Ford was not, I don't think, seen as a premier dad-like figure when he was the the heavy for his brother in the mayor's office. And yet that's exactly what he's evolved into. And so people can create their own public image and then that can evolve over time. So we may yet see a premier dad dumb achieved by David Evie, but but he may also have his, his own rapport to, to develop with voters. I think the other issue worth thinking about for the NDP is that in in moving from John Horgan to David Eby, the party does have a certain sameness there. And I think trying to exemplify and to, to show how this party is a party of diversity and inclusivity, I think it might be nice for the NDP to be able to show the strength of leadership that is beyond your typical white male NDP premier. And I do wonder if we may yet see someone, a strong leader like Selena Robinson or someone who comes from a more rural part of the province, Ms. Osborne, steps, steps into the ring. That's still a possibility. But but the number the number of potential candidates is dwindling rapidly. Yeah, but uh, I guess at least at this moment the last BC Liberal leadership race has more diversity than the the NDP one does as of now, and we'll have to see if that holds going forward. Switching gears slightly to federal leadership races, which there are two ongoing. We talked a little bit, actually a lot last week about the mess that was Patrick Brown's unceremonial departure from the conservative leadership race. He has, I think, since then hired some pretty high-profile legal counsel on that, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, the other big news this week was that he endorsed John Charest if he doesn't actually get back in. The old conditional endorsement. I am in this to win it until I am not, in which case I am in it for someone else to win it. And then, uh, yeah, it is to no one's great surprise that he would endorse Jean Charest, I don't think. Yeah, in fact, it was pretty much in it to win it until I'm not. And then anyone else can win it as long as that person isn't Pierre Polyev. The email he sent out to the mailing list was pretty much a just don't pick Skippy email, but Jean Charest is probably my, the one I think is going to win. So I'll back him talked about all the other leadership except roman babber who i guess slipped his mind on that one maybe just uh missed him in the editing process but i think mr mr brown may be disappointed because i think the one person he doesn't want to win is the one person who is going to win the leadership and i think it's increasingly likely that mr polyev is going to do so 
on the first ballot. It just doesn't seem like there is much strength left in the party to resist him. Uh, This is not the progressive conservative party. This is not the party of uh, Brian Mulroney. It is not even the party of Stephen Harper. This is a different entity. And Pierre Polyev seems to have captured the spirit of people who want to vote against Justin Trudeau from a certain point of view. He seems to, to have captured that spirit, but it's going to be really interesting to see whether that, that can grow beyond a, a, the narrow, really enthusiastic base that he's already captured. Yeah, the the only thing that might throw a wrench in the Pierre Polyev coronation is there's been some inkling in the past week that maybe his Quebec numbers aren't great. So there's going to be a third of the points or a quarter of the points, basically a quarter of the points that aren't necessarily going to be easy pickups for him and may coalesce around Charest, which yeah, could make it interesting. Not enough to uh, probably make it so he doesn't win, but might uh, at least throw it to a second or third ballot on there. But that, that still seems to be more just in the discourse ether than anything hard and fast on numbers. But yeah, we'll have to see on that. And then, yeah, go to a general election. I I think a lot of people are probably underestimating uh, his chances. I think he's probably going to be the odds on favorite if he manages to win the leadership race, which looks like he will. He's probably more likely than not, I think, to win the next election just because... You, you can tell the liberals are tired. There isn't a huge amount of uh, reserves of goodwill left on that. And he's a much better communicator than either the last two conservative leaders were, who, against a much less tired Trudeau, basically pushed him to uh, like a point or two away from losing power. So, depending on how aggressive the liberal war room gets, it's probably going to be the case, I think, where more likely than not he's able to consolidate things i think he is going to have an easier time than a lot of people expect coalesce in the conservative coalition together only real question is can he do what he needs to get that extra couple points in ontario to actually make it competitive yeah and that is a question i think the uh, a Polyev win is the worst news for Maxime Bernier. That basically eliminates the reason for the People's Party of Canada to really exist. I think those voters will feel quite at home in a Polyev uh, conservative party. And that gives them that, that marginal vote on the right. So they've managed to reunite the, the right. And given how thin the margins were in 2019 and 2021, it really doesn't take much beyond that to, to turn the tide. And as you mentioned, the Liberals seem ever more tired and and voters do seem to, for those, it is a little hard to tell. Those who are tired of Mr. Trudeau are clearly very tired of him and ready for him to leave the scene. But those who support him have continued to support him for through through thick and thin, through multiple allegations of, of and multiple co- controversies, whether it's historical instances of wearing blackface or whether it's SNC-Lavalin or whether it's the the issues around the We Charities and on. There's been uh, any number of, of challenges and yet voters... A plurality of voters, almost a plurality of voters, enough to win a plurality of seats have stuck with the Liberal Party. And so maybe that holds as well. I think the real battleground will be a question of whether Polyev's ability as a communicator, he has this a very deft ability to engage in essentially 
multiple messages for multiple audiences where, for instance, talking about the Ottawa convoy and the occupation and the protests, whatever language people like to use to describe it, he finds ways to use languages to express, use language to express support for the idea that people were tired with the pandemic. For some, he uses language that communicates support for the idea of engagement in some sort of a populist resistance for those who are more serious advocates for the protests. And just to wink at the fact that the he was seen to be supportive of a group that was calling for, at times, the overthrow of the elected government and the involvement of the governor general in, a, in a, some sort of plan to replace the, the prime minister. The Ottawa protest was the steaming cauldron of, of different points of view, white nationalists and so on. And so he's basically finding ways to say, I agree with the parts of this that you like, and the parts that you don't like, I also don't like. And if people accept, that's a pretty effective messaging technique. And the challenge then for the liberals will really be to say, no, this guy, he consorts with extremists. He has fringe ideas about macroeconomics. He seems to want to challenge the idea of, of the Bank of Canada as an independent institution and is dabbling with the idea of cryptocurrency as a really good bulwark against inflation. Like These ideas that have come up along the way that are just a little bit goofy at times. Yeah, they're not mainstream policies. And so the battle will be to we would see whether people frame Polyev as a voice of common sense or a voice of fringe macroeconomic quackery and whatnot. And so those are very different frames. And it's going to be fascinating to see which one wins out. And it most people have already made up their minds, I think, or they will get to a point pretty quickly that is consistent with their priors. If you like the Conservative Party, you'll like Polyev. And if you like the Liberals or dislike the Conservative Party, you'll be suspicious of him. But it's those middle voters who who may have drifted over to the Liberals and may be thinking about drifting away. Do they come to to endorse the idea of Polyev as that, that kind of common sense politician? So when he's able to put together those videos we've seen recently of him talking about wood in his house and washing the shit off logs or whatever else it was, that for some people, it seems very put upon. He does not seem like a guy who builds his house out of wood himself. And yet, for others, like this is the kind of thing they like to do on their on their weekends, and it resonates with a certain set of the population. It's just really going to be interesting to see which image breaks through. Yeah, the one thing I'll say on he seems to at least for all the weird ideas he floats around with the crypto and stuff, at least seems to be more in tune with the general cost of living concerns and whatnot than the government mm -hmm. is, and. That alone is going to be a big challenge for the liberals to overcome because they have not been good about talking about the issue going on six plus months now. And the longer that goes on, the, fact, the mere fact that he's just talking about it and the government isn't is going to let him own the issue in a way that is going to be very detrimental to the liberals because... Canadians vote on the pocketbook a lot. I know. It is it's going to be one of these ultimate ironies of Canadian politics and the election that would seem to be about a clash of ideology and, and the rise of populism in Canada and the, the Liberals trying to defend it, their ideas of institutions basically come down to pocketbook economics and who can better make the case that they are going to try to make things a little more affordable going forward. This is so many elections in Canada's past have been fought along those lines and this could well be another one and yet the implications given that this is a different coalition of, of voters that Polyev is assembling, the implications are potentially quite reaching well and the final bit of leadership news the green party is having a leadership race and 
they're having a bit of a brouhaha over what the internal fights about whether or not Green Party spokespeople should be criticizing candidates ahead of the race. So this is related to Quebec Green Party leader Alex Terrell, who had native comments to say about a plan to subject the Nets federal Green Party leader to a quote, continual performance review by top officials in the party, which sounds like a way to create incredible dysfunction within the party. And yeah, it's a pretty reasonable thing to, to criticize. If you thought Henry Paul was undermined by an informal version of that, having everything they do be second guessed in a formal process is probably not going to help either. It's it is a little bit mystifying, and yet it's not necessarily mystifying, given that this is the federal Green Party does seem to go in for the, this kind of internal conflict. And again, this is another one of those ironies about a party that is dedicated to grassroots politics is consumed by backroom uh, maneuverings and, and control over the party. And the, the, there's a certain paradox in struggling for control of a grassroots-led party. But I think this, on the one hand, you can understand why a party that went through a tumultuous leadership incumbency would want to find ways to to avoid that. And yet it it seems to be, if this the report is accurate about the idea of subjecting a leader to continual review is simply a way to to make permanent the situation that made the last leadership of Ms. Paul's ugly. And the idea of having some party members holding the leader to account and not the other way around is, is itself also uh in some sense, not not terribly democratic. Where the once the leader is chosen by the membership to lead the party, the generally speaking in Canadian politics, they are given a relatively free hand, or they are able to put in place the people to give themselves a relatively free hand to to organize the party to fight the fight the next campaign. And I'm not sure who would want a job like this if they are being told ahead of time that they're going to be subject to continual review. I don't think I would want a job that requires continual review of my performance. Yeah, between that and the French requirements that are more stringent than other parties, at least formally, yeah, it's not a surprise they haven't had many people come forward. Nevertheless, that didn't stop the Green Party sports spokesperson, George Orr, from sizing Alex Terrell heavily over the thing. And it just, that sort of back and forth sniping in the media just does not bode well for the ability of the Green Party, which at this point has become fairly irrelevant even by the standards of the Green Party. Uh, it doesn't bode well for their ability to pull out of the nosedive they, they appear to be in. No, it is. To be perfectly frank, this is the first time in some time I've, I've heard about the Green Party in in federal politics. And, and as usual, in the last couple of years, it is not good news for the Green Party when anyone hears about them. It's just a party that seems to have potentially fatal problems in terms of the, the struggle for control of the party and the inability to build any kind of stability or enthusiasm for the, the party itself. And again, there is somewhat tragic that this is happening at a time when everyone is agreeing just about everyone is agreeing that the green party was right 
that we can't afford to uh, ignore our changing climate. We need to do something now. And yet they're not there to reap any kind of benefit. And perhaps one way to interpret this is simply that as other parties come to accept that we need green policies, we need to move more more quickly to, to respond to a changing climate and to de- decarbonize the Canadian economy, even if we're not moving as fast as the circumstances would seem to require, it, it's pretty clear that most parties in Canada are taking this seriously. There, there becomes less of a a specific need for a Green Party to make that case when other parties are also making that case. And so we see that the, there may be less and less energy now than there had been to to join the Green Party at the federal level, at least. Yeah, yeah when everyone's a Green, being a Green isn't all that special anymore. Yeah, no that's way. what I said, only 20 times as fast. <laughs> Faster. Speaking of things that aren't particularly special or, I guess, noteworthy, let's move on to our second segment where the provinces are asking for money in the that great Trinidadian tradition of provinces demanding the feds pay them uh, a bunch more transfers. So this past week, the premiers held a two-day summit in Victoria with healthcare funding as the, the top priority. The feds were... Not really participants in this too much, but the uh, the provinces generally want the feds to increase their share of healthcare funding from 22 to 35%. The feds maintain that they're not going to want to shell out a bunch of money without actually knowing how it's going to be spent and having firm commitments about that. And they also take issue with the province's percentage that the provinces are claiming as being spent by the feds as are specific funding streams uh, for stuff like long-term care, home care, mental health, as well as that in 1977, they tweaked the funding arrangement so that rather than a portion of the money going directly from the feds, they transferred tax points, which the provinces could then take up. And that as a result, the feds are saying they're actually spending close to 35% on this. The old story of the tax points transfer agreement of 1977 rears its head once more. It's one of my favorite debates about federalism in Canada because it is extremely wonky. But does the federal government agreeing not to tax Canadians and um, vacating a certain amount of tax collection capacity so that the province could then go and tax the, their own residents on in the stead of the federal government, does that count as a federal contribution to provincial coffers? The federal government at the time intended it to be seen as in saying, here, we'll settle this once and for all. And by doing this, and then the provinces quickly said, now you still need to pay up a little over a third of the costs here. So where's the money? And then the federal government said, no, you go and get it. This is the, we're no longer as involved here as we once were. But now we've seen this argument continue on for for longer than I've been alive, which is quite some time. This is, has been a, a debate about over how to calculate uh, the, the relative share uh, of healthcare funding in Canada, let alone the direction of the policy, just the, the accounting where they don't agree. The provinces do this every year now. They come together as the council as the, of the federation, which is just the provinces. And it's just this attempt to try to come together to a, a united front to show that they stand opposed to the federal government to increase their bargaining position and also to find other areas where they can work together. But the paramount purpose here is to get all their provincial ducks in a row to make the, the demands of the federal government. And 
And yet, it, it all it always comes down to the issue that the the provinces are asking for the money, and then the federal government has to decide whether to give it or not. The federal government is able to collect the taxes, and they don't necessarily have to spend it. They can choose to spend it, and as a result, they really prefer to spend it in ways that they get credit for, such as by creating a mental health transfer or creating some sort of digital health platform or whatever it is that the particular policy flavor of the year is. And then that money does come to the provinces, and it does provide some help. But from the province's point of view, this opt-in, opt-out approach to funding means that provinces can never really count on it. So they can never really build long-term planning around the, an increase in core funding. And so that's what their demand always is. Give us more, give us blank checks so that we can spend the money as we think it should be done. Yeah, on the task point transfer, mathematically, it probably works out to be the same as a fund, a direct funding, but... In practical terms, I don't think anyone would understand that to be a contribution in the traditional sense. Now, I still think that's probably worthwhile. And if anything, they should probably be transferring many more TATS points because the system we got now, sometimes I think called what is cooperative federalism is the view that the two levels of government come together and work something out and we're not going to be super picky about the whole what section 91 and 92 divisions of powers and whatnot, but it really does feel like in practice it is less a cooperative federalism than a butt-passing federalism where they get to point at each other and argue that it's either the Fed's not giving them the money that's at fault for the the state of the healthcare system, or it's the provinces not spending the money how the Feds think it should be spent that is the fault of the, or there's that fault for why the healthcare system isn't doing super great and it just feels like the whole thing ends up muddying the waters more than anything and ultimately reducing accountability for the governments on this sort of thing. Yeah, that's quite true. I actually teach a course on this exact subject, Canadian federalism. And the nice thing about Canadian federalism is designed in a in a way that provides maximum flexibility to, to leaders. They can choose to, to cooperate when they wish to. Provinces and federal government can come together and put together agreements to, to do this or that or the other thing when they choose to do so, subject to, to those sections 91 and 92 and the court interpretations of them. But if they don't choose to cooperate, then nothing happens. There is no way to compel action in the way that we see in a, in a few policy areas in Canada. For instance, on the, the Canada Pension Plan, there is an agreement about how that money is going to be collected and how is it going to be dispersed and what sorts of agreements are necessary in order to change those rules. It's really much more formal, the, the structure around the Canada Pension Plan. And that is quite intentional to uh, uh, remove the the temptation that provinces may want to dip into those funds and redirect them to to more politically salient issues. It it works well in that issue. But there are you could apply a model like that to say health spending as well to make much more ironclad the relationship between federal and provincial governments. But no one really wants to do that because they want to maintain this flexibility, this freedom to respond to political pressures. And as a result, you can sometimes get these sort of lowest common denominator results where whatever you can get at least everyone agreeing to, even if it's not the best thing. And that's what happens or whatever the federal government decides on its own. If it's in the case of giving money to the provinces, that's ultimately what happens. They offer the money into the provinces, kind of refuse it, or they can negotiate a little bit around the terms of it. But ultimately, it's this it's the main tool that the feds have in their arsenal to try to maintain some kind of continuity across the country, but they do so in ways that they find politically advantageous. 
Yeah, a lot of that's kind of the theory behind the Canada Health Act, that they were going to have at least a common standard across the country if right. they wanted to get access to the and health it, transfers on there. It is interesting what you were mentioning about the tax points declining. One of the one of the ways you could interpret that is that the federal government at that time, and it, at various moments since then, has really declined in size relative to the provinces, that the provinces are, are becoming more significant actors in their own right, shouldering more of the financial burden in part because of those additional tax points, but also because they are they are growing in their, their own tax base and then their access to royalty revenue streams and so on. And different provinces have different financial solutions at their disposal. But what ends up happening is that the federation becomes more decentralized as a result. One of the effects of allowing provinces to tax spend money on, say, health spending, it, it makes the possibility that provinces will tax and spend unequally a bigger possibility and a more real possibility. And that holds out the prospect that at some point, if things become decentralized enough, the federal government's not going to be able to use things like equalization funds to to restore the balance. And you end up with an unequal federation, more so than we already see, where some provinces have a great deal of prosperity and some are not able to provide the same level of core services. Yeah. So I mean, you have the equalization to cover off the balances in economic power between jurisdictions w- within the aspect of how you want to balance the the tax burden versus quality of service like that that really is a political question and one where it seems to me entirely fair for provinces to being the frontline places and the one that are constitutionally empowered to both manage the healthcare system and collect taxes that the ones best able to figure out what the right balance for each province is and having yeah the having them take on that balancing act more directly may actually be to the benefit because that way it actually makes the trade-off very clear rather than the murkiness that surrounds it when you have such a, a huge transfer base as the core funding aspect of such a oh not such a large price 22 percent but like a, a sizable chunk of it and like the Canada health transfer has increased pretty much every year. I think there's a slight dip in like of one percent in 2006 before it started climbing back up again, more or less. But other than that, it's been on a steady upward trajectory. Right. There was the, the uh, just about three percent no, nominal GDP per year, I believe, is how it's increased. Um, yeah, it was going up price sits for a while. It's now going. It's been right. going up by three for, I think, the past decade, roughly, yep. on that. Paul Martin had the escalator to try to restore funding after the cuts of the 1990s, and then Stephen Harper moved to a 3% line, and then Justin Trudeau basically said, ah, we like Stephen Harper's line just fine. So there's actually been a great deal of continuity between liberal and conservative governments on that. Yeah, and 3%, that's still a fairly compounded out. That's still a pretty significant increase when you added up year over year. And that, I think, is the real problem that none of this really gets at, is that healthcare costs are eating ever larger chunks of provincial budgets. And while it's convenient to look at the feds as a way to deal with that gap, ultimately, having healthcare eat up ever larger chunks of the federal budget as well is not necessarily a sustainable path out of that. And you really, I think, have to figure out how to, over the long run, bring healthcare costs and GDP growth into a more closer alignment in terms of their rate of growth. And that's not going to be easy, but it's going to require 
something more imaginative than 13 premiers gathering once a year to ask the the federal government for more money. And here too, you see how these meetings tend to paper over differences. So you see that they can agree that they need more money, but they can't necessarily agree on some of the kinds of reforms that that you know, you're mentioning. And that can they can take all kinds of forms in terms of making it easier to train and hire nurses and doctors and to certify nurses and doctors from abroad to try to increase the the, the supply of practitioners currently missing in the system and that have been that problem worsening due to burnout from COVID. You can look at other forms of innovation. You have Saskatchewan chomping at the bit. To to champing at the bit, champing, champing at the bit, to champing. Uh, I think it's the term. champing at the bit to to ch- ex- experiment with the privatization, sort of taking up the torch from the Ralph Klein uh, conservatives in Alberta. Well, so you have very different solutions and on that, uh, out there. And on that front, uh, it's worth just flagging because this will probably be out by the time the podcast is out tomorrow. The BC Court of Appeals is releasing their what was it Canby Surgery Center ruling. Which will, uh, yeah, impact that very question with respect to BC. Mm-hmm. And so this is a debate that continues ever on in, in, in Canadian health policy. How do you find ways to improve the efficiency of the system while still maintaining those core values? And then the federal government always says that this is the why the federal government needs to be involved to try to ensure the commitment to a, a publicly felt funded program with universal ac- access and all those other principles of the uh, enshrined in the Canada Health Act. And then they use the funding to try to maintain those, although they do that much less than they, they did once upon a time. It's much more of a live and let live approach, as you mentioned. But yeah, this issue has been there seemingly since the beginning, or at least since the since there was a Canada Health Act. And this and uh, going into the 50, just about the 50th year of debate of, of, of funding the, the health program in Canada, or perhaps even more than that, the tax points debate is entering its 44th year. And these issues have always been with us. They, were, they will always be with us. Us, as long as there is a candidate, I think. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately, it's probably going to have to be on the premiers to really figure this stuff out because the stuff like recognizing foreign credentials, that's squarely within the provincial aspect. Same thing with tweak, potentially tweaking a lot of the systems. And un- unfortunately, we don't actually have a pretty robust debate publicly on, on how to do this stuff because it tends to be pretty myopic where there is exactly one reference case that Canada looks to when we ha- have these debates is what alternatives are. And that tends to be the U.S., which is rather unfortunate because there's a lot of European, Australian, Taiwan. There's a bunch of different countries that have different models than necessarily the Canada Health Act that produce very good results. But we're not actually seriously looking at that. Because it, it tends to be a very North American centric discussion whenever the uh, the bait goes outside of kind of the very narrowest of and I mean it taps into that that fear as you mentioned which is fairly well justified of of private system without real protections built in for the broader public we've seen what it can do and so that's where that that third rail gets its energy from in Canadian politics. And it, it, so far, it still is. And so that, that worst outcome is pretty bad. We've seen it. And so I think unless there is some way to to find opportunities to expand debate, it, there are other strategies that go beyond healthcare as well in terms of provision of, of things like a basic income or funding for paramedical services. Where we're seeing explorations of, of those sorts of preventive measures to try to make a, a population healthier overall as, a, as another way to, to keep costs down. That takes a, an even larger, more global approach to policymaking, which seems to be 
beyond our scope at the moment, reeling from crisis to crisis and from handshake to handshake and politicians and not much else. In the interest of time, I'll just move us along, but quickly note that interest in healthcare, they also talked about a few other issues. Notably, energy came up in there. Rob Shaw played that among the items being discussed that the premiers all agreed on was the advancing hydrogen, hydro, wind, carbon capture, and most notably small modular reactors, which are interestingly prohibited under the BC Clean Energy Act, or at least to the extent that under the objective section of the legislation, no nuclear is pretty explicitly spelled out. Interestingly, that's a BC liberal bit of legislation, which is not necessarily what you'd expect from the ideological valence of it all. BC's Minister of Energy was asked if that this indicates a change in the government's position on there, and they said no, which I think it's small modular reactors have a lot of benefit, and as a country, we should be doing more to advance nuclear power. BC is probably not the place to start with that, though, because we have very abundant hydropower that doesn't really need a nuclear supplement the way it would be very useful in, say, Saskatchewan or further east. Nevertheless, it seems silly to, to just prohibit it as well, even if we're not going to be taking it up anytime soon. I think it's a way to buy a certain kind of peace with the environmental movement in BC. We know that for some, there are many different strands of environmentalism. Some environmentalists are deeply suspicious of, of nuclear energy and the, the possible possibility of catastrophic reaction. I mean, we've seen examples of that. Fukushima comes to mind. But uh, on the other hand, there are environmentalists who are adamant that, that this is a, an option we need to explore and to do so robustly. If we were to really take seriously the idea of decarbonization, it's got to be an all-hands-on-deck effort. If there is a the possibility of creating a more mobile, nimble uh, nuclear energy in a uh, in a uh, safe way, then that should be explored. And it you only have to look to the example of Germany to see what happens when environmental goals run up against the desire to, to denuclearize at the same time as decarbonize. In, in Germany's case, they're going to have to fire up some coal emitters again to make up the shortfall from mothballed nuclear reactors. In, in in BC, it, I don't think we're going to need a nuclear generation given the abundance of hydro, but it's not it's not a global solution. Yeah, yeah. The Germany thing is completely nuts on that. And slightly fun fact: the coal plants actually release more radioactivity than nuclear plants do due to trace amounts of uranium in coal. So they're not even keeping the the radioactive emissions down with that. I think they're more worried about the catastrophic risk of, of meltdown when you're really trying to avoid nuclear Which energy. Is, That's got to be what's motivating in the background rather than still less dangerous concern than about specific pollution. Right. Yeah, it is. A, yeah, a, a coal does not seem like the future, to be honest. To be perfectly frank. <laughs> Indeed. Well, moving on to quick takes. <sighs> Another bit of going back to the future is the random COVID tests are coming back to the airport. This was announced today that once again, fully vaccinated travelers are going to be subjected to random testing. Although in this case, they're also moving some of the testing centers out of the airport, which just seems logistically annoying. If you have to 
if you got selected, do they like escort you there or do you have to go and then prove you got the test or whatever? I get the fact I'm gonna that I guess the, the latter, but still weird. And like a logistic Sorry, pain in the ass. Oh yeah, on absolutely. That one. It this never ending pandemic does seem to be designed to make any kind of compromise policy that people will generally agree to impossible. This is a moment where we do see that there there may be a need to tighten up measures to against COVID. It, once again, cases are on the rise and the current variety seems like a nasty version. So you understand why governments are trying to take these measures, but trying how do you do that in an era in which the consensus that measures are necessary has fully evaporated. It doesn't really matter how you do this. It is going to annoy people. So this is one way to annoy people, but I don't know if there's another way to do it that wouldn't annoy people. It's going to be particularly annoying considering the airports are already a bit of a disaster zone at the moment in terms of just basic functioning. Adding something else on top of it is not going to do anything to improve their functioning at all, which they desperately need. And I don't know, I'd be I'd be more on board with this if we had any success at on any of the previous attempts at trying to keep out new variants and new uh, new infections at the airports and the borders. But considering the very dismal track record of uh, keeping out the original COVID strain, keeping out Delta and all the other and Omicron and all the other variants of concern. <sighs> You you do have to wonder if this is more theater than anything else, just because the track record on the past attempts were so spotty. Mm-hmm. We know there there are some things that that work well against COVID. Asking everyone to wear a mask if everyone does indeed wear a mask works pretty well. But some of these other measures do seem to be the doing something for the sake of doing something. The, the rules about wearing a mask at this moment in your journey across a room and not at that moment, things like that are. When measures are designed in such a way to to try people's patience without necessarily achieving a great deal of additional security, you can you can you worry that whatever fragile support there is for social, political, governmental action to to safeguard against COVID will simply just continue to evaporate. Yeah, and we're getting to the point where we're really hitting the limits on a lot of the various systems we have going and they've been under a lot of strain over the last two years and before where we could deal with the trade-offs because that the costs were lower or could be dealt with a CERB or emergency spending and whatnot we're getting to the point where the trade-offs are I think much more pronounced and a lot harder to mitigate in a quick and easy manner than they were before and that's just gonna make crafting policy a lot more difficult going forward and it probably means governments need to be a lot more exacting in where they they target their interventions both on a practical level of can you actually execute on a way that doesn't make things worse and on a societal will the public actually go along with you on this and that is not going to be easy with, uh, as we noted, healthcare systems under deep pressure and the the ongoing uh, loss of expertise as people simply burn out under the stress. So I don't know. I don't know. If we're going to see more effective, more more innovative responses anytime soon. I think it is going to be something like this for the medium term, which is, has a sense of inevitability about it. But then again, so too does the pandemic at this point. Speaking of things under stress. So too are borrowers as the Bank of Canada 
raised the interest rate by a full percentage point or 100 basis points for the finance bros of the world out there, as they are want to describe it as. Not unsurprising, this is the standard playbook in the face of high inflation. I think the full percentage point versus 0.75, which was expected, caught a few people off guard, but on a policy level, the Bank of Canada is more or less doing what they should. It hasn't stopped politicians from across the spectrum from crying foul on that. Pierre Polyev, yeah, tweeted out criticisms of that, as did Jagmeet Singh, who, if you, who had a tweet that almost sounded Polyev-like. The only thing that was missing is the word gatekeeper from it, and otherwise it would have been pretty much right on point. Uh, basically saying that the interest rates are hurting hardworking Canadians and we they shouldn't have to the Bank of Canada shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, it seems like the the consensus that lasted for the better part of three decades that parties should not challenge the Bank of Canada and its governance and leaving the, that institution independent of political posturing seems to have ended. And the NDP's reaction to Pierre Polyev attacking the bank is to say, why didn't we think of that? We should do that too. So now yeah, so if you can't beat them, join them. And so now what is interesting here is that, and going back to musings on the upcoming federal election, whenever it does come to pass, is that this creates a certain lane for the liberals, that they are the party of the institution. Uh, they are the party of macroeconomic orthodoxy. They're essentially, they're the, the party of doing things the way that the experts say they ought to be done on things like uh, macroeconomic uh, management. And so that, that does create a certain possibility for the liberals next time around. And it'll be interesting to see if the NDP sticks to the idea that uh, there should be greater political commentary on what the bank is doing. Yeah, so seems generally being reluctant to criticize the bank again. Though in terms of the his ideological cohort, I've for years been hearing that it's bad that interest rates are low because it's causing asset prices to rise and that just benefits the rich. So it's uh, amusing to hear the, this is bad if interest rates are low, it's bad if interest rates are rising. They have your cake and eat it too approach to it, which, yeah, doesn't entirely sit, but it's a political rhetoric. There, there is a critique you can build. You can say things like, the ability to move capital around provides opportunities for those with money to to survive any kind of macroeconomic changes in ways that those who are capital poor, who are dependent on their labor, or who have fixed assets, who are in some ways they are less fungible than those with movable capital, are always going to be they're always going to be more vulnerable. Those without that fungibility, and so effectively, it is quite possible that low interest rates can be good for the rich and high interest rates can be good for the rich as well. Maybe talking about slightly different classes of rich in each case, but more fundamentally, it, it makes sense if you were to articulate it along the lines that the financial system is fundamentally unfair and there are advantages that accrue to those with greater amounts of capital, particularly those who can move between jurisdictions fairly easily, that just give them a leg up no matter what's happening. But that's not what we're hearing here. We're just hearing interest rates go up are good for the rich. I'm not provides, saying that's what Mr. Singh is arguing. Yeah, pr provides very little insight from those lines of criticism and how to actually craft policy. Because if everything you do is bad, then it doesn't actually help you do anything, decide what to do in any case. But speaking of everything being bad, Canadian telecoms, man, do they ever, ever suck as many Rogers 
users and amusingly enough, including the CRTC, who couldn't even take complaints from the Rogers outage because they were on Rogers. <laughs> so that went down. But in the way to that, Ottawa's announced that uh, they're going to require telecoms to provide backup to each other, which, eh, good. Weird that it, there wasn't already plans to do more for redundancy, but uh, is what it is. It, I mean, it is, but it doesn't have to be. It, it is a reality that as we move towards a more private approach to telecommunications and i was regaling some of my students with the tales of the fact that it was not always this way that our communications infrastructure once upon a time was nationalized the telus for instance was once upon a time agt and bc tell and they were two government i am just old enough to remember bc tell being a thing as yeah, a kid. it was a thing and it merged it merged the two two companies the two i believe they were crown corporations and they were merged to create a private ent- entity that was spun off the better to compete for business in a rapidly integrating North American market. And Talos certainly has been a successful company, but it is a, a private one that was built on the, the basis of, of government investment once upon a time. And so you can have this reality that the, these private companies are nonetheless filling a space that was once filled by a, a public entity. And they are doing so in part because once upon a time, this was seen as a national concern or seen as a, a utility, a, na- a natural monopoly that ought to be regulated. And so we seem we have gone as far as we can in terms of in allowing the market to, to protect us. And now there's a need to move back towards well, we're, regulation. We're in kind of that weird spot where there are definitely places that have much more competitive telecoms markets than us. Europe is... In, has insanely cheap cell phones by Canadian standards, in part because it is a very competitive market. But within Canada, yeah, it more or less operates as a natural monopoly, and there is very few reasons to not treat it as such and actually have it be a nationalized service. It, we're really in that quintessential middle space of getting the worst of both, and... Either move in one direction or the other would be helpful, but the current situation is just... Uh, and there are trade-offs. Not there are trade-offs in either direction. If you were to nationalize your your grid, once again, you would likely create a system that is not terribly innovative. That is a possibility. You would try likely create a system that is not necessarily going to be a whole lot less expensive, but you would create a system that can be effectively regulated where price, prices can be managed through 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 legislation and then rather than competition. And we'll probably have less redundancy compared to their current system, which, or at least, as we saw, does not have enough in it. May have, or rationalized redundancy, that becomes much more possible, much more manageable once you're managing the network as a whole. I don't think Canada can ever fully embrace the European model. It, we just don't have the population density. We could open our doors to unrestricted American investment in the telecommunications network, I suppose. It's not an area of expertise. I'm guessing there are good reasons why we don't that do that. But a particular one would be effectively we lose control over our telecommunications infrastructure at that point. And, and that is something that Canada has long resisted. Yeah, I guess just another reason to do the, the maximum Canada plan so we can have enough people to have a decent cell phone industry. There you go. <laughs> it all comes back to housing. Just need more houses for more people to pay for cheaper cell phones. Yeah. Speaking of things where we our lack of population density is causing problems, the environment minister, Stephen Gabot, had a bold plan to travel across Canada to visit various communities by train to 
spread the good word about what they're doing on climate change and whatnot, ran into a slight problem that most of Canada doesn't have train service, which is just both funny and disappointing at the same time. Like, this is the most I have never left the Toronto-Montreal quarter perspective ever to just think this was a thing you could do as a as someone trying to get across the country. But also, yeah, we really need better trains in this country. And even the the little bit that has okay train service is pretty terrible by most standards. But Maybe this will be a galvanizing effect. You need to publicize every problem along the way. It'll be like, I think it was Dwight Eisenhower who went staged a cross-country tour of the United States before he was president to illustrate just how bad the, the roads were. And the media along for the ride. Yeah, so this was when he was a fairly junior officer before he became a general. Was doing, I think it was before he became a general. Anyway, he yeah had to let a convoy across the country, and it took him something like I want to say one to two months to get across the U.S. in like a, a motorized in motorized vehicles. That's how terrible the roads were. That was what, in large part, led to the interstate system mm-hmm. under his presidency. So we need to do that. But for trains, and then perhaps money will flow and we will have an integrated train network. Yeah. Like this, this country was built on the railroad, and yeah, it would be nice to rediscover those routes somewhat and bring back a more robust rail service. Yeah, it would be nice. And certainly you can see it. You can see the evidence of it uh, everywhere, literally, where we have paved over uh, tracks in Vancouver and elsewhere. All right. So a lot we didn't get to on the dock today, but in the interest of time, I think we need to cut it there, lest this turn into a three-hour podcast. Stuart, thanks for joining me tonight and filling in. Oh, always a pleasure. My my typical class length is three hours, so that is the normal amount of time that I talk for. So that may be why this is taking a little longer tonight. <laughs> you bring a political scientist along, you're going to have to listen for a little while. I had only one of my classes in university went three hours long, and that was a by hour three, it got to be a slog. So, yeah, you need breaks, you need videos, yeah. you need hand so we'll, puppets. We'll let the listeners get a break and uh, we'll check back next week when Ian will hopefully be back and we can maybe hit a few of the things we missed tonight, like the new seed allocations. Absolutely. Get better soon, Ian. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.